Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. As always, thank you very much, wonderful listener, for joining us on the latest of our fantastic podcast. And today is a really interesting one and it's a subject that we haven't talked about too much on our podcast. It's in the reward space, but it's also, we're going to be talking about gender pay gap. And we're going to get our guest in in a minute. But before that, I always need a duet. I always need a partner when I'm firing the questions at a guest and my partner today is Emma Scriven Ems. You all right? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to be back, isn't it? Very good to be back. Always exciting to be talking all things DNI. Yeah, except as we were just saying before we started, the only downside is we're currently recording this on the hottest day of the year so far, and all three of us are indoors, a little bit melty. So if you can hear that in our voices, we only apologise. But let's get our guest in. It's Joshua Hanston uh, getting, and Josh is a senior manager uh, of Warden Benefits at Virgin Atlantic. But we're actually going to talk to him about his time before Virgin Atlantic. And the reason why I've got Emma Scriven in to talk to Josh and myself is, of course, because you guys used to work together didn't you Ems? We did indeed, we did. Yeah, so we introduce him then. Josh, how are you doing? Good to see you. Hi, thank you very much for having me here today. It's really great to be here and thank you very much for that kind introduction and it's great to be back talking to Emma again. We were just talking before the recording started about how long it's been since we've actually been speaking face to face rather than just exchanging emails through LinkedIn. I do love that about HR where it is a little bit of a bubble and you keep bumping into the same people again and again. It's lovely, isn't it? It's lovely. Now, Josh, we're going to talk about some of your time that actually you spent when you were at MS with Emma as well. But before we do that, let's just do a little bit of an intro so that our listeners know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do at uh, Virgin? Sure. So um, thank you very much. I'm the Senior Reward Manager at Virgin Atlantic. Obviously, I'm here in a personal capacity today, not representing the company. I've worked in HR in a variety of industries, so two of the FTSE 100 so far, and I've been in Reward now for 10 years. Reward is really interesting, and I'm going to take this brief moment to say, if you, like me, work in HR and at some point someone has said to you, oh, you're good with Excel, come and consider joining us in Reward. We're always on the scrounge for new people to join us in our profession, because you need to know a bit about HR, you need to know the basics, but you also need to be good with number. So if you are thinking about this and by the end of the podcast, you think this is really interesting, there's always reward managers out there trying to recruit new reward analysts. I'm giving you a word up. I really enjoyed that cheeky little plug there to get into reward. <laughs> I, I have in my career come across many, many reward managers, but only one who meant to go into reward. The rest of them are HR professionals who got poached. So I am totally going out here and above the profession and just poaching everyone possible. Love it. Absolutely love it. One of the reasons that I thought you'd be a wonderful guest was because obviously when we worked at m you did some work with the government around gender pay gap and had a little trip to number 10. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you did, what you found, kind of why you got to go there and just some of your thoughts kind of since then? I have to say, going to Downing Street was one of those few times where, and I'm probably speaking for many people in the HR profession, where your parents actually were like, oh, that is impressive. Usually you try and tell them that what you've done is impressive and they don't understand why that's a good thing. Um, but now I was like, look, there's a picture of me at Downing Street, mum. She was so impressed. Gender pay gap reporting came in April 2018. In those early days, companies were getting a lot of, I suppose, persuasive argument provided to them about how you should set your targets, 
what you should consider to be good, what you should consider to be bad, what you should consider to be an improvement and how you'd go about doing it. The gender pay gap calculation for anyone who's already done it, this won't be a surprise, but for many people who haven't done it, is actually surprisingly complicated. Which pay components are in, which pay components are out, how you analyse that. And when you're talking about an organisation of any size, just getting the numbers done is challenging. I was doing the numbers because in many organisations, gender pay gap got given to reward because, hey, it involves pay and these guys are good with numbers anyway. But we were looking at these things that the campaigning organisations were telling us, oh, if you do this, it will improve your gender pay gap. And I was like, well, this is maths. Okay, look, it's complicated. It's long-winded, but it's maths. And the whole point of any formula is you can run it backwards as well as you can run it forwards. So if they're saying that if you put this intervention in place, it will reduce your gender pay gap. And we're wanting to provide some certainty about my organisation wants to reduce its gender pay gap by insert percent here, by insert date here. What's that going to achieve? I ran them into the calculation. And when I say ran them into the calculation, if you're talking about a company with pay ranges rather than pay points, obviously not everyone in the same job is paid exactly the same rate of pay. So you then talk about, right, okay, but if we have turnover, what are we likely to appoint staff at? And you're talking about randomising gender, but in certain proportions based on your current workforce and you're talking about running it a hundred times to get a proper statistically relevant sample and all of those things and then you come up with going oh wait a second all of these things these campaigning organizations are telling us to do don't work and some of them actually would make our gender pay gap bigger and some of the things that we're finding that would be the only things that will reduce our gender pay gap are the things that the campaigning organizations and the company and actually when we finally got there Downing Street the Government Equalities Office don't want us to do because they're actually either unlawful unethical or both and you're thinking how are we in this position where what is being published as the stuff that will affect your gender pay gap isn't actually representing what some of the country's largest employers would actually see in their own numbers. And that was a really interesting conversation. Now, of course, as a reward manager, my stock in trade is trying to find out what other companies are paying because we are in competition with other companies. So you have various benchmarking forums. And I use the opportunity of a benchmarking forum, carefully policed by one of the um, consultants, to check in with the employers of other organisations had they come across this same issue. Because yes, whilst my statistics had been double-checked in-house, I was like, are we fundamentally getting something wrong? And you kind of found it was a bit of an emperor's new robe situation. I'm talking to employers who, as a rough finger in there, were probably employing around about one in 30 of the UK working population. We're in that room at that point. And they'd all come up against the same challenge I had. But no one wanted to be the person to put their head above the parapet and say, well, wait a second, this isn't how it works. This number is not showing you what we're being told. It shows you. But having spoken to that many people and got that confidence, we then spoke to our industry uh, representatives at the British Retail Consortium, explained the challenge. This would be common across the industry and across many industries. It's not just a retail issue. The British Retail Consortium put us in touch with the Government Equalities Office. Very interesting conversation with them. Put us in touch with Downing Street, went into Downing Street and kind of explained, OK, look, you're making a statement that you want to get to the point where you want all companies to reduce their gender pay gap on the assumption that reducing your gender pay gap equals being better at diversity and inclusion. But here are the things which my organisation would need to do to reduce its gender pay gap. And here is why they're unlawful or unethical or both. And you watch this kind of dawning realisation where I think a lot of the campaigning organisations was motivated by absolutely the right beliefs, hadn't actually checked their numbers and had assumed that the numbers would move the way they wanted them to if they put in place the interventions they thought were good. But this statistic is so complicated, that's not necessarily true. And and if you're going to put pressure on organisations to reduce this number no matter what, you're going to end up with 
potentially negative side effects depending on the organisation. And so that was the nature of the conversation with the government. You saw some backing down in their comms the subsequent year. They moved away from saying all companies must do it and all companies must do it in the near term. And they started talking much more about long term and the cause of the gender pay gap could be many and varied and there could be structural things that companies couldn't do about it. But it was one of those interesting conversations about many employers had spotted this, but very few people feel comfortable talking about it externally. And even now, I'm only talking about externally because I, I no longer work for that organisation. This is me talking in a personal capacity. You struggle to find people who work for organisations who can have this conversation about their organisation in real time. That's fascinating. Really interesting, Josh, getting that insight. Listening to what you were just saying there, and it almost sounds like there's too much narrative that goes on around the pay gap. It's too much about making noise from a political perspective and not about solving the solutions. When did you actually go to number 10? What year was that? Oh, now you're asking. I think that was 2018. Uh, might have been early 2019. And so we're now four years down the line. Mm. And I guess that one of the questions I just had for you is from what you've seen, probably from an external perspective, because obviously you've moved on different roles or doing different things. But have you seen much change based on what you told the guys at the number 10, apart from, as you've just said, all right, they then started to change their narrative and they weren't so harsh in terms of everyone needs to conform to this kind of set of rigorous structures because we understand that each, you know, there are complexities with different organisations. But have you seen much change? And I guess my second question is, if not, what needs to change in your opinion? So I suppose where we are in 2022, the big thing is to remember the pandemic happened. I know I'm sure none of us have forgotten that, but it did change the gender pay gap reporting. So you had relaxation, of the obligation to report, and then the following year, a change in the deadline. And so I think it kind of came off the agenda for many organisations. They might have been aware of problems, but it wasn't their active area of focus for the last couple of years. We're now getting back into the reporting cycle. So I think you might see more conversation about this coming online again. To answer your question about have we seen much change? No, but I think very validly, everyone's been focused elsewhere. In terms of what should change. I feel like I'm doing my profession out of a job, but genuinely, the gender pay gap sits with a reward because we're calculating pay. The Office for National Statistics has done a study of what are the causes of the gender pay gap. I mean, the gender pay gap is real. It does exist. Across the UK in total, it's 15.4%, although interestingly, 7.9% for full-time workers and negative 2.7% for part-time workers. So it's there, but it's not as simple as, oh, it's an equal pay issue, which I think what the general public understand it as, despite all the comms. It's different to equal pay. And in particular, the largest single identified cause of the gender pay gap is occupational segregation by gender. So men and women in general, on average, prefer to do different jobs. And that's thought to be around about, from this analysis, 23% of the entire gap is driven by that. There is a large chunk that is unexplained. But the bit where I'm saying we're doing this out of a job is we're talking about pay because it's easily measured. Every company has a payroll. Every company has finance. Every company can work out what its gender pay gap is from numbers. But just because this is the one thing that is easily measured by all organisations doesn't mean it's the most important diversity and inclusion metric for your organisation. There's this kind of default that it is the only thing that matters because every company has to publish a report on it. And you end up across the economy with everyone looking at their reward team to talk about diversity and inclusion. And I've got great respect for my colleagues who work in other areas. And actually, for example, just picking that topic of occupational segregation, if we're talking about who applies for which job, surely that's a recruitment metric or is it a diversity and inclusion metric, depending on how your organisation is structured. It's not a reward metric, I can tell you that. But it ends up being your reward team who talk about it because we're the ones doing that analysis of pay. But this isn't necessarily a pay problem. And so I think my big change thing would be actually, what is your company's diversity and inclusion areas 
that need improvement, areas that you're doing well? Are you confident in that? Are you confident you're actually measuring them? Do you know what their impact is? Are you putting as much emphasis on those as you would do on gender pay gap reporting? For most organisations, the answer is no, because most organisations, they're not reporting externally on these other metrics. They're only reporting externally on the gender pay gap. But it is potentially focusing attention in not necessarily the right area. I think it's really interesting just hearing you explain about the gender pay gap and how that is kind of one of the key metrics that people do use in DNI. And I think it's interesting that a lot of the conversations in the kind of DNI space right now are should we start ethnicity pay gap reporting? Should we start disability pay gap reporting? And actually, I suppose based on what you've said, is that the right place for businesses to be focusing their efforts? Or actually, should there be other things that they're looking at or better kind of places where they can focus their efforts than just looking at this pay metric? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to come off the, the topic of uh, ethnicity pay gap reporting there, because at least with gender, men and women are spread evenly across the UK. In ethnicity, that's not true. If you're an organisation with a lot of frontline workers in London and a head office out in the home counties, your ethnicity pay gap is going to be bigger because your frontline workers in London, which is 42% ethnic minority, are much more likely to be ethnic minority than your office workers in the higher paid jobs out in the home counties because there's a lower prevalence of ethnic minority people out there. Or the other way around, if your office is in central London, but your frontline workers are out in the suburbs, again, you will have a smaller ethnicity pay gap reporting. Neither of those companies' ethnicity pay gap reporting, the difference between them isn't due to the diversity and inclusion approach. It's purely down to their geography. And there is, going back to talking about what are you measuring, do people of different ethnic backgrounds applying for a job have the same chance of success? If there is a not a same chance of success, is there a good reason for that? Or is there prejudice in your recruitment criteria? You will not know that from ethnicity pay gap reporting. You could look at it and have your central London office and your frontline workers outside of London have a really small ethnicity pay gap and think you're doing fantastically. And actually you're not, or you might be. You just won't know from your ethnicity pay gap reporting number. It's really interesting. I was just thinking as you were saying that, with the increase in hybrid work, this might be a difficult one to answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. With the increase of people then hybrid working, do you think there is room for manoeuvre, so to speak? Because I was just thinking about the way you were talking about how you know, you've got ethnicity pay gap within perhaps regions so London, for example. But if you can hire people from further afield, is that going to help to alleviate some of that? I guess, it, I don't know if I'm answering my own question here, does it depend on the industry? So for example, if you've got retail workers, you can't exactly hybrid work with retail workers, can you? Because they've got to be on the shop floor. But am I answering my own question there, Josh? Possibly. It will really vary by an individual company's dynamics. So it's geographical spread. And also like the perception of where people want to work yeah. is really huge. To give you an example, so again, talking about the retail industry, the British Retail Consortium did a survey of why do people work in the industry. There can be this perception, and I'm going to say it, among high-income members of the population, that the only people who work in retail are people who are students or people who are only working there for a few months before they move on to something else. Having worked in an organisation where the average length of the service was over 10 years, I can guarantee you that's not true. You've got many people who make long careers in those roles. But the top two reasons why people work in retail is job location and work pattern. The majority of jobs in the retail industry are flexible. So they're part-time, they are not nine to five, they work on different shift patterns that are available that often translates as can be fit around caring obligations. And on the face of it, you go, okay, well, right, many women have caring obligations, that explains why it's majority female. Well, it does, but you look at the proportion of male and female in different sections of the retail industry, it won't come as a surprise to find out that 100% of the Salesforce staff in a laundry retailer are female, because they just don't hire men to measure women for bras. That's straightforward. But you look at it and go, okay, yeah, I can understand why there's more men in men's wear and all various typical 
stereotypically, there's more men in the electronics sector. Pet care, interestingly, somewhere in the middle. Food, somewhere in the middle. There's this kind of division across the industry. So you see this kind of pattern of, oh, look, there is, it's not even about the industry. It's about your individual employer, where that individual employer is based, what product it's retailing, what its perception is in the recruitment market. I suppose just thinking about the kind of data game that we get from the gender pay gap how much of an impact does kind of the size of an organization the shape and we've talked about retail a lot obviously you've got a lot more workers at lower levels than higher levels and also locations of businesses how much do those kind of three factors play into gender pay gaps from your experience my experience is unless your gender pay gap is very large, so where it's driven by a really clearly identifiable factor and has put you at a very high margin, it's often by a combination. People will say things like, oh, well, if we recruit more women into this area, more men into that area. But the best way of imagining it is your gender pay gap is measuring a balance. So imagine trying to balance a ruler on a pin and the ruler's got different weights bolted on on different places. Where are you having to put that pin to get it to balance? But the point is, in an organisation that's dynamic, you're never just adding or removing one of those weights. You've got little weights scattered all the way up this ruler and they're all moving the whole time. And so you get this point of people going, well, we've put in this intervention, our gender pay gap hasn't moved. And like, well, yes, because you were focusing on 10% of your workforce of 6,000 people. What's happened to the other 5,400 people over the course of the time since you made that intervention? And it all flexes at the same time. It's a really difficult calculation to come up with any kind of predictive analysis. And unless you have a really straightforward organisational structure, it is really hard to do predictive analysis about what will change your gender pay gap. Because all of the demands that's on an organisation from its commercial world, from its pay negotiations, from its recruitment abilities, will be changing that gender pay gap in real time as much as any other diversity and inclusion initiative you apply. This is really interesting. Um, So I just want to touch on something. As you were just Mm. talking there, I was starting to think about your time at M&S and where you have, you obviously, you've got a really good, you had a really good opportunity to present some of the data that you'd collected, present it at government, which is fantastic. I remember when you and I first had a chat a few weeks ago, we talked about the role of people within reward. And right at the top of the show, you were talking about people falling into reward, so to speak. And I remember us talking about whether or not people from reward need to have a bigger voice. So I just wanted to get to get your take on that. And particularly when you're talking about when we were talking earlier about what's changed, has much changed? Has there been much changed other than government narrative and bits like that? Is that because reward people don't have enough of the voice, do you think? Is it seen as kind of like this bit to one side and that's the reason why you don't have a voice? I don't know. What's your kind of take on it? I think almost I'm going to slightly answer a slightly different question, but I think it's a more interesting one, if you don't mind, which is when you say about voice, so we do the numbers in reward. We do a lot of numbers because you have to, because you're dealing with pay. But actually, and I think we've had this, uh, you you see this discussion in a lot of places in HR, a lot of areas of HR are getting more involved in number. And so there's a bit around where I say that organisations often lean on their reward team to explain the gender pay gap because it's about number. Well, actually, we could provide the input, but I think the ideal would be more organisations where there are more people in the HR profession in that organisation who are comfortable with number. So you're not having this bit of trying to get someone from diversity and inclusion to talk to reward, to get reward to model what the diversity and inclusion interaction would be. But the diversity and inclusion team are able to model the interaction themselves. Reward does have a need for a voice, like an equal pay assessment not a gender pay gap assessment, but equal pay assessment is an important thing to do. And it's part of your diversity inclusion thing, but it definitely sits with reward. And you would want reward to be involved in that. And you'd want reward to have a voice explaining the outcomes and any change that's needed. But actually, there are other areas which are equally important, but 
you're not going to get to the truth of the matter without dealing with the number. I think reward does have a role potentially in helping educate our colleagues as to how to handle the numbers. We deal with sometimes massive data sets and sometimes really long running data sets. If you're talking about a company that's got an in-house pension function, you're talking about tracking colleagues and ex-colleagues for their entire lifetime. There is a wealth of data in there. And I'm not saying that you necessarily need that level of data handling ability across the whole of the HR profession, but the kind of the default that, oh, you're good at a number, therefore you should come and work in reward. Absolutely. We want to poach you. Please talk to us. But also shouldn't just be reward. It should be, oh, you're good in number. We want to talk to you in recruitment. Oh, you're good in number. We want to talk to you in employee engagement. The profession as a whole should be more comfortable talking about statistical analysis. Do you know what? You've just taken my next question. I was actually going to say that to you. And so Putting words into your mouth, does that mean that when I talked about reward having a voice, like I'm thinking about projecting out to the rest of the business, but actually it's more about reward having a voice and the rest of HR leaning on the reward function rather than let's have a voice at the top table, that sort of thing. It's more about how to reward work closer with HR, because one of the things that we talk about a lot at Lace Partners is how HR as a profession needs to get better at analysing, interpreting and then utilising its data to evidence its decision making. So I'm obviously a marketing person. I live in the world of ROI and data and bits like that and evidence your decision making. And so from your perspective, I'm assuming you're along those lines as well. It's that the HR as a profession needs to get better with analyzing, interpreting and maybe looking at the likes of your customer services or your finance teams or your marketing teams and say, right, what are they doing and how are they evidencing their decisions? Because we need to do that with our people data. Absolutely. I also think there's a bit around getting different bits of HR to talk each other's language and know more about what we're doing. So to give you a classic reward example of what you might do in a big organization, if you're looking at, say, right, your turnover and you know that turnover is high, are you able to articulate why is that a problem? Have you looked at the cost to recruit? Have you looked at the cost to train? Have you looked at the productivity of your colleagues by their length of service? Have you worked out how much high turnover is costing your company? Because as soon as you've done that, you've worked out a business case for actually what intervention should you put in? And I know the reward team in your organization will be able to say, okay, well, we can increase pay if we're below market, but actually it's probably not just pay. What's your employee engagement statistics saying? Are these people leaving because of pay or because their manager's not treating them well? Or have they not got enough training opportunities or development opportunities? And there's this bit where you often in HR have kind of quite separate data fields sat in different areas. That bit of analysis I've just talked about, if you're going to do it properly, you're pulling on recruitment, you're pulling on employee engagement stats, you're pulling on your baseline HR data about turnover. You're talking to the business about productivity and which teams are performing the best and getting data you can integrate to all of that. Reward can often help coordinate pulling that data together because we're often most familiar with how to do that kind of pull the data in together. But actually knowing what data is out there and which teams can work together to build it, that's a cross HR responsibility. Someone needs to take a lead on it, but it's going to involve many different people. So just to kind of close off this discussion, it's been absolutely fascinating and hopefully people who are listening in have kind of thought the same. But I suppose, Josh, if we have HR professionals listening into this podcast, looking at the gender pay gap statistics right now, what would be your kind of practical one piece of advice for them when they're looking at that number, thinking about what do they do with that number? How do they change things in their organisation? One piece of advice. That's a challenge. Right. I'm going to put in a proviso at the front that I'm assuming this person, because they're interested in it, has already done their equal pay assessment and established it's not a pay problem. But if you're in that situation, I think part of it is, okay, yeah, your gender pay gap, it's legislative. You need to do it. So fair enough. You're going to have to get it done. But don't assume it's the important measure. Work out for yourself, what is your organization's risk factor? Is it that you've got potential risk around discrimination and recruitment? 
Is it promotion? Is it retention? And measure that instead. And that's a bit of me dodging the question because I'm not saying, okay, it has to be recruitment. You must measure recruitment. But actually, you know your organisation better than anyone else. You can provide narrative alongside your gender pay gap numbers. And that narrative can say, okay, these are our gender pay gap numbers. But for my organisation, we think we need to measure recruitment better. We think we're going to be doing that in this way. And we're going to be reporting on it in this way. And find what is the most relevant and important diversity and inclusion metric in your context and treat it with the seriousness that you're currently treating gender pay gap purely because you're forced to do it by law. Don't rely on the law to tell you what's important for your organisation. That's amazing. Josh, thank you very much coming on our show today. It's been really enlightening. Actually, I've really enjoyed it. So uh, we'll drag him on again and at some stage in the more future, I'm sure of that. But thank you very much for joining us. As always, you can get this podcast through anywhere that you usually get your podcast channels so we are on spotify soundcloud stitcher if you shout into your alexa device hr on the offensive podcast it will give you the latest show we will put uh, this on our website too it goes onto our website at lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast that's it from us for another edition of the hr on the offensive podcast emma scriven thank you very much for joining me and for bringing josh along to the table Thanks for joining. And thank you very much for having me. It's been really interesting to have the conversation. And as I say, the reward profession as a whole wants you on board if you go to Excel. I'm putting that plug in for the third time. Go on, guys. But also, it's really great to be having this conversation. I know it's going to be something that's going to become more important in future. And as a profession, we are going to be paying more attention to this. Absolutely. So there you have it. Josh and his one-man crusade to get more reward people into the business. Thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you.